0: Today's episode of the Open Pantry podcast is brought to you by me, Sean, from Open Pantry Consulting. Make sure if you're opening a restaurant or starting to scale your restaurant that you come and check out what I'm doing at openpantryconsulting.com. Everything around operations analysis, recruitment, or data analytics. Everything to get your restaurant, cafe, or bakery on the better side of this crisis. Let's keep going with the show.
1: Staring down the barrel of a 60% permanent closure rate, it's time to fix what's
0: broken. It's time to change the game. The hospitality industry is at a pivotal point, and it's become painfully obvious that business acumen and strategic planning will matter just as much as resilience. There's no shortage of resources ranging from how to apply
1: for loans to how to negotiate with your landlord. But at some point we will turn our sights
0: towards the future. And when that time comes, we'll need tools and strategies to thrive, not just survive. In the hospitality industry, we fix our own problems. This is no different. We've created a group called the Hospitality Game Changers. It's on Facebook, a platform you already use daily. It's a space just for us where we're tackling the most difficult issues.
1: Facing our industry
0: and creating solutions.
1: It's updated daily with the most compelling
0: audio, written, and video content. To make sure you're plugged into what's going on today and what can help us tomorrow is quick and easy and free to join just log into facebook and search hospitality game changers in the search bar and you'll all it we can't change the cards that we are dealt but we can change how we play the game Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. As always, fantastic to have you listening along, so thanks so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to have a chat with our next guest, Sophia Levin, who is a culinary travel journalist and has contributed to such media brands as SBS Food, Good Food Guide, as well as Lonely Planet, and obviously she also has her own website called seasontraveler.com in which she invites us to eat curiously. I feel honored to spend the time with our next guest Sophia Levin. Hey Sophia, how are you? Hi,
1: I'm so good. How
0: are you? I'm very well. I'm um I'm trying not to butcher the intros as much, but I find <laughs> I'm slowly I'm slowly getting better at it. So um so here we go. Um how did you how did you start out as a food writer because you've obviously had such a stellar career um and it's been really exciting to do some research about you the last couple of weeks. And just really understand a bit of your journey. I mean, you've got such a great voice in this industry and in Victoria and around the country. Like, how did you actually start out being a journalist in the food game?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I studied journalism, which mm-hmm. is definitely useful, but <laughs> I didn't I didn't start studying journalism straight away. Mm-hmm. I was doing a, a double major degree in psychology and marketing at Monash University. Mm-hmm. Um, going back, oh, how old am I? 10 years or so now, I think, which yep. makes me feel a lot older than, <laughs> than I am, I think. Um, but I actually, I, I took about uh, nine months off, a year and a half into that degree, yep. and went traveling as you do when mm-hmm. you're young and nothing matters. <laughs> and during those travels around, around Europe and specifically North Africa to Morocco, I started writing more and more about my travel and food experiences on a, a great little app that people may or may not remember called Facebook Notes.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay.
1: Which, which my dad actually sent to me earlier in the year, so it still exists somewhere in the other regions of
0: Facebook. Really? So okay. It, yeah, it was,
1: it was just my way of diarising what I was doing so that I didn't have to check in with my parents every 24 hours as an 18-year-old woman travelling around who they were yeah. freaking out. Uh, you know getting lost or kidnapped or god knows what else and i i really enjoyed it i really really enjoyed it and then other than the writing the thing that really struck a chord with me was people taking action when they read Mm -hmm. what i had written so Mm -hmm. booking a trip to morocco or wanting to experience something a little bit different yeah uh, that really left an impression Mm so when i got back from overseas, I switched up my degree, took on a journalism major and switched the others to to, um, minors and sort of went from there.
0: Wow. Did did it make you feel quite, must have made you feel really proud in a way that you, you felt you could write, you know, these great articles and then people would actually really relate to it and actually cause an action on the other end. Did that make you just, you know, feel really proud about the work that you were actually doing at that time?
1: Yeah, it definitely did. And I think there's there's definitely a lot of merit to, I'm pretty sure it's a Spider-Man quote, which it doesn't sound like, well, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, And that's that's Spider-Man, isn't it? It's one of
0: those. Oh, I feel like uh, it is. I was, I'm going to X-Men Marvel <laughs> or whatever, you know. Yes. Um,
1: It's it's funny because when people start actually doing what you say, especially when you're young and following your footsteps, you think, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, I need to make sure that I'm doing this properly and making sure I do the stories justice, yeah. make sure the information is correct. And so it's it's a funny one because at the same time you're studying journalism and you're studying ethics and what's right and what's wrong and, you know, making sure that information is always balanced. But in the last 10 years, the media landscape has just changed so drastically. Yeah. that a lot of it, I think yeah. does get lost or weighted too heavily one way or the other.
0: Yeah. Is, is it a challenge to still... Sort of create those powerful, you know, articles that are sort of a call to action, or just you know, just great articles you feel really, really proud of that you want you want people to read, or you want people you know to to watch or listen to. Like, is is it hard to get that cut through now that it is so much more fragmented?
1: I think this is this is kind of where Season Traveller came from. Is that a lot of the stories that I personally love writing and mm. telling and sharing. A lot of the publications that I write for just aren't that interested in them. And right. okay. I understand why to a degree a lot of the time they might be, you know, too, too small time or not new enough or it's just some little neighborhood joint that I think is really great around the corner. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have the budget or will or even the desire to be in mainstream media and they don't have to be by any means but I I love sharing these experiences and a lot of the restaurants and the places that I cover uh, exist to serve the the communities that surround them, um, often my communities and I just think there's so much to learn and so much to gain from just eating food from somebody else's culture and for me I suppose eating isn't necessarily about being satiated. It's about what can you learn? Uh, how can you sort of leave a table with your mind broadened and expanded as well as your
0: stomach? Is, is there kind of someone, is there somewhere where that mindset came from, Sophia? Because like my, my concern at the start of this crisis is that because we were going to potentially lose so many venues worldwide that we were going to lose a sense of community. Like, but you actually thinking about the fact that there is a part of community within side food venues and, and you know that the, the food that a chef will bring out will actually tell a story about where they're from or, or that kind of thing. Like, is there somewhere where that's become ingrained in you, or is that just the situations you've been with, you know, being in in your early 20s and touring around and, and, and traveling and that kind of stuff where it came from?
1: I think it's probably in my DNA a little bit. I've got a Jewish background. So Mm -hmm. I grew up, grew up. I still go to my parents every Friday night um, for our version of Shabbat, which is not exactly kosher, but it is very much about family and and community. And Mm -hmm. I've I've done that my whole life. I'm going to my grandparents, my aunties and uncles, Mm -hmm. my folks. And now I I host every now and then as well. Um, So there's always been a real gathering around food Mm -hmm. uh, culturally for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, doing things like going to the market every Friday with my mum, big market, and other sort of activity around food mm-hmm. or going for Sunday brunch with my family when, you know, the kids aren't hungover <laughs> but always, <laughs> always, always catching up around food and, and cooking and eating. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that's always been there for me yeah. and that's just how I live.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome thing. I go, I go to the Queen Vic Market every Sunday and I think if – um. If there's a time I don't do that, or if something comes out of step and I just miss out, I feel like my week isn't the same. It's a re- it's it's such an important ritual for me. So yeah, I can I completely understand that. Yeah, lockdown
1: really throws it all a bit out of whack. I need to rebuild those habits,
0: definitely. Oh, it was so sad. Like I live about four point five kilometers from Queen Vic Market, and it was just really important for me to do that in the five k lockdown. And, you didn't um, move,
1: did you, to be within well, the Vic no, Market so, radius? So what? So. <laughs>
0: So what I did, because I was about, I was just on the 5Ks and I decided to park a couple of streets away so I'd <laughs> be within inside of the barrier and then walk the rest because I just wanted to support them every single week. These people who, you know, weirdly have become part of my life, you know, for the last five years I've lived in Melbourne and, and um, I wanted to make sure I could support them. So it was, uh, it, was a bit, it was a bit of a different way to do it, but I got there. <laughs> um you, you know, as I said in the start, you've you do um, a lot of different styles of journalism. You've you've contributed to so many different kind of publications. Is there is there a kind of style or a story that you like to tell now that you've been doing this for a while?
1: Does it sound self-involved to say I love writing
2: in first person? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I don't know. I think do you it's, love about it's
1: something it. that that you don't often get to do. Mm. Um, for the publications you write for. You're representing a publication. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not about you. Uh, but I find that in in some of the opinion pieces that I write, for broadsheet for example, or when I'm writing season traveller newsletters and articles, it's still not about me yes. when I use first person. Mm-hmm. It's more about the experience. So it's I, I sort of see it as a, a window or a doorway mm-hmm. in for the reader into being able to be there where you are, or even to be you um, and relate to you. And I'll I'll very much write for the audience who I believe is reading. Mm -hmm. It just forms, I think, a better connection. The same way you might have a host on a TV show. Yes. And that has kind of different vibe to, I mean, for example, you look at, I don't know, you look at someone like Adam Lill or um, Bourdain and you're very much following their journeys. Mm. Whereas you watch Chess table on netflix and there's someone in the background there interviewing and asking them questions but you never see them it's, it's yeah. all about the specific story of the person who's being interviewed yes and i think there's a lot of merit to both of those methods yes but there's just something about being able to follow a person that i really enjoy and mm-hmm. i'm more than happy to be that person if it if it means that somebody can sort of say oh you know check out this middle-class white chick eating something that I thought was scary, maybe I can do it too. I it's, think that's really powerful. Yeah, I totally
0: agree. <laughs> I think there's agree. a lot of merit in that. Mm-hmm. Are you, like, how do you feel storytelling is around the hospitality industry at the moment? Do you think it's, you know, do you think it's as connected to the culture within inside the venues, the actual food that's coming out? Because I feel like we've gone through a situation like the last five or ten years where we've just focused on we've focused a lot on fit outs and, and things like that of new venues which have come through. Like do you think we're focusing enough on the actual storytelling like like you are so well doing?
1: I think there's going to be quite a lot of change over the next year to eighteen mm. months. Uh-huh. Or I hope there is anyway. Mm. I think the same formats are tired and they won't work yeah. forever. Yeah. I think reviewing is going to change, I think it has to change. Yeah. And that's that's there won't be storytelling necessarily, or maybe there will be. I think if you start storytelling it sort of doesn't become a review. It becomes yes. a feature. Correct. And yeah. and people people really do get confused about that. I mean you look at a publication like Broadsheet versus Good Food. Mm. Uh, Good food, you know, Jemima does an amazing job at the reviews there and, yeah. and Danny as well on the weekends, mm-hmm. But then you look at Broadsheet and people say, oh, we got reviewed by Broadsheet. Whereas you ask anyone at Broadsheet and they'll tell you they don't do reviews, they do reporting. Yes. So people don't even understand what it is and who's doing what at the moment. And with so many places opening and so many places closing after the pandemic, Mm. you know how do how do you condense all of that, or all of Melbourne, or all of Australia into one little book or one website? I think it's nearly impossible. Mm. I think there are going to be more and more sort of niche publications, the same way people might specifically look for their news on you know, whatever website because they're interested specifically in sport or yep. specifically in vegan food going like, people start to really nitpick the kind of content and news that they want to consume. Yes. And I think the same thing will probably happen with restaurants if it isn't already.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Like reviews are a very interesting thing. Um, <laughs> just uh, I'm, I'm curious how, like obviously not reviews in, in places like Good food, like Danny does, an amazing job. Like, um, but yeah, just reviews across the border. I'm curious how people um, trust them. I suppose as as a general rule, and uh, and I think um, maybe influencer marketing, you know, especially has contributed to that the last couple of years as well. So yeah,
1: of course, and then the influencers are just a whole whole other ball game, right? I mean, yes. they they review, they still reviews. I guess um, traditionally with food critics, mm. you trust them based on their experience. You know, they do this every week, multiple times a week. Yes. Paid to do it. Yes. Um, whether you like them or not is, is different. The conversation that's shifting now is a lot about who who gets to be a food reviewer, who yes. gets to talk about food from other cultures. Mm. You know, is it somebody who studied journalism? Is it a chef? Is it somebody who's chinese reviewing a chinese restaurant is it someone who's indian reviewing a chinese restaurant yeah everybody from every background should be able to review any restaurant
0: yeah but you do have to know what
1: you're talking about
0: how do you think we qualify that
1: <laughs> it's really really hard i think the best thing you can do is uh support the people who are interested yeah. who are coming up to do that mm-hmm. and there aren't enough resources around in media and journalism for the big publications to do that. I mean, everybody wants to do it, nobody has the time, everybody's understaffed. Some people argue that's no excuse, but you know, ultimately the power is removed from a lot of the editorial decision makers yeah. by people further up. So there there is room. There's I think there's a huge gap for whoever has the money to set a really, really, really good example for everybody else. Maybe start something new, whether that's a food guide or um, a really independent website where, you know, you can afford to not only nurture young and up-and-coming critics and food writers and feature writers from all different backgrounds, Mm. but also to, you know, revisit a restaurant more than once in case it has a bad night, like back Mm. in the good old days instead of just going once based on the press release from the PR company that represents the same, you know, sort of five big names that you'd see regurgitated in all the papers and broadsheets again, yeah. again and again and yes. again. But, you know, it takes a lot of resources. So who's going to do it? Someone, I hope.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's going to become, I think, an even more fragmented sort of landscape, you know, um, over the next couple of years, I think, which may be a positive, I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it'll allow certain pockets to actually have, you know, a voice where they may not have got a voice before. So, I mean, that's something yeah. that may come out positively. And this is
1: all without even talking about social media, which yes. I think has mm. so much more pull than it ever, ever has. Yes. So, you can't just talk about the media landscape in terms of traditional publications anymore. It's, 100%. It's driven and led by individual, I guess you call them, Thought leaders, or whatever the technical term for it is in marketing, yes. Um, but it, it changes, and it's opinionated, and you know, are people talking about what they're being paid for enough? Is it sort mm. of hidden away? You just it's it's hard to know what's real and what's
0: not. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you you are obviously deeply connected to a lot of people in this industry. Um, Melbourne, especially, has had obviously an awful time as we tape this in November. The last six months, seven months, however long this has been going for. Um, What is time? (laughs) Oh, I don't even remember. Um, I don't remember when this started anymore. Um, How do you, how do you feel? You know, the restaurateurs, the the owners are coping at the moment and feeling, as we sort of head into a hopeful summer of you know outdoor dining and and maybe things um easing you know restrictions wise even more like how what kind of conversations are you having with people in the industry at the moment
1: do we swear on this podcast or we can
0: or not? swear as much as we fucking want Sophia. well
1: they are fucking excited and they are fucking <laughs> terrified yeah in yeah. some uh the words that i hear the most are excited and nervous yeah And nobody really knows what's going to happen i think um, the pandemic has sort of shed a light, especially on what's broken in this industry and what works and what doesn't work. Yes. The question is what happens when JobKeeper dries up completely mm. and what good habits do we take forward? And a lot of that will come down to diner demand. command um, I mean, you look you look at people doing set menus now, like previously they only did out of the car, they yes. do multiple sittings. It yeah. might not be... As relaxing an experience for a diner who only has an hour and a half or two hours, but I can guarantee you the quality is going to be far superior because there's more control Mm. from the end of the restaurant. Mm. But do people want to pay $100 up front or give their credit card details or be happy to pay a no show fee if they're assholes and don't show up?
2: Yeah, yeah. A lot of
1: people still aren't. It's a huge change of habit and the way that we've done things for a very very long time Mm. so i sort of hope that just the more restaurants who do that who have set times who take prepayments who do take charge and take control of their systems if enough places do that at the same time Mm. then the diner just doesn't really have a choice they want to go to those restaurants they're going to have to jump on the bandwagon Mm -hmm. and that would be a really really great thing for the hospitality industry in general
0: yeah yeah, I totally. I totally agree. There has. You know, I. I just hope there's something that's going to come positively um, out of this. And I want. I want to get your thoughts on that in a second. Um, before you just reminded me of something as you as you told that uh, that story there. Um, mm. When I was doing the research on you the last couple of weeks, I love the fact that you did a post on Instagram basically saying "Don't be a dick." And yes. was it the ten or twelve there reasons? There uh, were
1: there were twelve, 12. I can tell
0: you what I could probably think of more. Yeah, like where did that? Come about because we sort of saw we sort of saw a lot, um a bit of a movement in Sydney um, a couple of months ago when people were doing no shows to venues when they were making reservations, which is just such a dick move. Um, such a dick move, you know. Like, so how did that? How did it come about? The you did you know twelve reasons <laughs> to not be a dick? Like, was it just a conversation you were having with people in the industry? Was it something that you you know just felt?
1: the week before restaurants reopened, so I guess it was the announcement. I, I went from being not incredibly busy to incredibly busy. I was yeah. asked to write three separate features on restaurants reopening mm-hmm. for three separate publications, mm-hmm. an opinion piece, a major story and a colour all within one week. Um, yeah. And they were all covering the same thing, which was, you know, how do restaurants feel, what, Is the vibe going to be like in, you know, the ghost town that is the CBD? What's it actually like dying back that first week? And there were were a lot of conversations I had that I couldn't squeeze into those features, mainly because they weren't necessarily appropriate. Um, There were some tips and tricks and, you know, do's and don'ts, but there was just so much more that wasn't covered. And just hearing the stories from people about things, in particular, no-shows, which just... Blows my mind, um, especially when restrictions at that point. You, most people could only seat ten. Yeah. Uh, and even still, there are some restaurants that can only seat ten mm-hmm. legally, even mm-hmm. though you can seat forty inside with all the proper per square meter each and yes. all of that. And just to think that you know there'd be tables of six or eight for a room of ten who just wouldn't show up—that could close a restaurant. You know, when yeah, you're exactly. when you're sort of it's like living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. for rent. And on your credit card bills, when you've got to pay your staff, your rent, your electricity, your suppliers, your wine guy, all of this stuff, and if someone doesn't turn up, you can't come with the bills. Mm. So that was the first one, was definitely don't be a Mm no-show. But then there was a lot of other confusion around just what was general etiquette and what wasn't, such as, you know, when to wear your mask, what can you do as a diner to make the conversation with weight staff as comfortable as possible. Because yeah. nobody wants to say, hey, mate, you know, would you mind just doing this? Yeah, That makes it awkward straight away. But it's, you know, it's their responsibility to keep their staff and their customers safe.
0: Yes. And you can't get
1: shitty at them for that. It's their job.
0: Yeah. It's like I, I imagine that, you know, you... As well as me would have just you know you're pretty much almost out every night the last couple of weeks because you know you want to support venues <laughs> and you haven't been you haven't been sat down in a venue for like five months um and just some of the some of the shit that I've seen and you know great hospitality leaders having to tell guests to wear their mask when they're walking around and going to the toilet like it's just such a silly silly conversation when you walk into a venue and they're doing everything right and they tell you everything off the bat. And then they're having to ha- just have silly conversations, or you know, can you just be a bit more distant, or, or whatever? I just i i um I'm struggling to feel for the people who are you know saying they can't get into venues or whatever, because so many people are not acting right in venues when they're actually when they're actually going. It's I don't know yeah. what, I don't know what the solution is, but.
1: Yeah. It's really frustrating, and the, there is definitely a case of the the vocal minority. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of comments on articles yes. where I've told people to just like just fucking on your mask. It's not that hard, and then you've got people arcing up saying. Well, actually, for me, it is hard because I've got this, that, and the other. That's fine. Mm. You can get an exemption. Go exactly. to the doctor, get the note. Don't sit there and complain. Mm. Do the right thing. It's mm. you know, you, you give people an inch and they take a mile. Yes. Um, and I'll and I'll stand by that, and I'm happy to be criticized as much as possible. Mm-hmm. The rule is wear a mask. If it's really that hard for you, get takeaway and have it at home, exactly. or get an exemption and don't wear your mask. Yeah. Don't just complain about it but not follow the rules because every fucking other person every other restaurant is following the rules. So why do you get to be better or different from them? Yeah. It's not
0: very community-minded. Do you you feel there's been, like, especially in the last week, I've noticed a bit of a beat-up on venues um, for saying potentially not doing the right thing? Like, have you felt that sort of come through? I felt that's, like, Wes Lambert from, you know, the uh, Caterers and Restaurants Association has basically been in the media every day, like, trying to, Almost shelter or protect venues who are, the, who are doing the right thing at the moment. Do you, f- do you know where this is coming from? Do you feel that's a valid thing? Yeah, that's definitely.
1: Set? It's I mean, it's a two-way street. I can mm. you know sit here and talk about diners doing the wrong things as much as I like, but there are restaurants doing the wrong thing, and mm. um, and again, that's unfair for all the restaurants who are doing the right thing. Yeah, totally. So, you know you you follow the rules and the big one there is is capacity how many patrons can you have actually sitting there yes and that has a huge impact on your bottom line yes so if you're just you know going to ignore the 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 room rule which changed from having separate rooms to either having a divider or a five meter gap between rooms yes I mean, you said it's podcast you probably can't do it all um you know if, if you're just going to squeeze an extra 10 20 people in there when someone else is doing the right thing, it's just not an even playing field yeah um and then you've got i mean i've, I've been to venues the where there are a lot of people in kitchens are not wearing their masks properly yeah, maybe their nose is hanging out maybe they're just down under their chin and yes. you know it's 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 just a facade that they've got it on their face. They're not actually doing the right thing. Um, and I, I know it's hot and stinky and sweaty and hard enough to breathe in a kitchen in front of an oven as it is. Yeah. But God, we're in we're in an era of open kitchens, and I've had so many messages from people from customers who are really uncomfortable seeing that. Yeah. So the same way you want a customer to be comfortable, just you know, having a glass of wine and and sitting there on a, a, a seat that's nice and flush. You want them to feel comfortable when they look at you. I mean, the same yeah. way you would not rock into work as a staff member with your shirt off.
2: Yes, that yeah, make exactly. That would them The yeah, Same way,
1: wear yeah. your mask properly. And all it means is that your customer will feel comfortable and then they'll come back or they'll tell other people about what a great experience they had and go and support X restaurant because mm. everything was clean, the food was fantastic. It was weird because it's post-COVID lockdown times so you know, they made a joke about it and it was really nice. Because the alternative is they'll tell 10 times more people about the chef in the kitchen who had his mask hanging around his ears and yes. wasn't doing it properly. Same way you'd comment if you found the hair in your food or someone sneezed into it without covering their mouth. It's a brave new world and everyone has to do the right thing until masks can be removed. It's just all about trying to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And people who don't play by the rules are just going to make it really hard for everyone
0: else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this if I can. Um, In Melbourne, obviously, like I've had four separate conversations with four different venues the last couple of days saying they cannot get stuff. Yeah, they're busy and they can't get stuff. I think, I think it's because we've not, um, as a whole, haven't been in the industry, haven't treated um, our overseas staff very well, and a lot of them have gone back home um, and haven't come back. Like, do you th- do you do you see, like, what do you feel the reason is? Do you feel it's do you feel it's because of you know. Um, a lot of overseas workers who have gone back home, do you feel it's just people don't want to work in the industry anymore because of you know, they're getting government payments or whatever's happening there, like do you have a general feeling about what's, what's going to happen? <laughs> I have a specific feeling that mm-hmm. it is
1: 100% because we didn't support our temporary visa holders yeah. and they were given no choice but to find other jobs or leave the country altogether yeah. and that's going to come back and bite us in the arts. Um and it's something that already happened in Sydney. It's already happened overseas, and now it's happening here in
0: Melbourne. That's 100% what it is. Yeah. What do you What do you think we can learn from that as an industry? Because obviously, you know the the amount of people that I've I've hired in my time have been from overseas. Like, there's been a lot, right? And I've always tried to make sure that we're paying them correctly. We're not paying them in cash. We're making sure they get superannuation. We make sure they're treated respectfully. All those different things. Like. What do you think? The, do you think the industry is going to learn anything from this, or do you think they're just going to get through it and then we're going to have, you know, international workers back again, and we're just going to do the same thing again and not treat them properly?
1: I don't think it's an industry problem. I think it's probably much broader than that. Mm. I think any any industry beyond hospitality, uh, whether you know, whether that's backpackers picking berries, yeah. which I know is a huge problem, or you know, being in the vineyards that come harvest, yes, or through to I don't know junior staff working in law firms or junior doctors. Like a a lot of people, Victoria, Australia, why are from overseas? Everyone's from bloody overseas unless you've got indigenous blood, really. It just depends how many generations you've lived here for. Um, And, and, you know, we we harp on about being a multicultural society and being accepting and all of this. But when the legislation doesn't reflect that in a time of crisis in terms of support... You're full of shit like your government's full of shit is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Um I think you know the, the best thing that you can do as an individual is bug the people in power as much as you possibly can and you know sign petitions, send letters, all of that, because it's it's gonna be really damaging. You know, we rely on people from overseas to make up a much bigger part of our workforce than just hospitality.
2: Yes. So we're go- we're going
1: to need them. We're going to need them back, and mm. people are going to be short staffed for a very long time, and that's going to be a, a really hard gap to fill.
0: Is it is it a hard story to tell? Is it is it a hard story to get out about the the kind of mistreatment you know of those workers around the country? Like you know, from a journalistic sort of perspective, is it? I you know, oh, hear we you know we sort of hear about it occasionally. You know, the ABC does a quite a good job of, of talking about these kind of issues. Um, is it, is it, do you think it's just a hard story that doesn't come out very much? Like, do you think we need to talk about it more or...?
1: I think the more you talk about anything, the less likely that... Uh, sorry, the more you talk about anything, the more likely it is to change. Uh, yeah, So okay. I don't think such things too much coverage maybe mm-hmm. it's because of the the circles that i write in and the people i follow yeah. on instagram but i feel like it's been it's been a big part of the conversation throughout the sort of lockdown covid pandemic mm. period so i'm kind of surrounded by it and and really aware of it um mm-hmm. uh, what will be interesting is you know in three months six months nine months 12 months time to see where the industry is at yep. and how much of what's happening then is related to anything from overseas workers through to the super fast adoption of technology through to just restaurant dining processes changing Mm -hmm. through to consumer expectations of what it means to eat in a restaurant in Mm -hmm. 2021 and beyond.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about a couple of positive things to finish off um, (laughs) the podcast. Um, There are going to be a lot of, shifts in the industry over the next um over the next couple of years obviously um do you think there's a what kind of positive things are you looking forward to that maybe we haven't done before that you think are going to happen now in the industry like things like outdoor dining and that kind of stuff do you think are you looking forward to that like what are you looking forward to the most i am
1: so pumped about summer this is very <laughs> short-term yeah. future and, yes. <laughs> and outdoor dining. Yeah. i think it's just so fantastic. Like. Fuck Melbourne weather. We always find a way. I mean, the amount of times I've sat on a balcony or rubbed up with a glass of wine, you can just do it in a in a restaurant as well. Yes. I mean, yes. haven't people heard of mulled wine? Like <laughs> heat the parklets during winter. It'll be fine. Yeah, I totally agree. Some heaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're we're a fairly sprawled out city and state yep. Um, yep. compared to you know anywhere really else in the world. You look at Japan, Tokyo, London, anywhere yep. in the UK, New York. We have so much space, and I think these parklets in particular, these outdoor dining hubs, it's just such a good vibe. I mean, just walking around the city and around my area in the inner north, when you see the concrete blocks, it's like a beacon of hope. Yes, there's another (laughs) one coming. Um, You know, places like um, like Gerald's Mm -hmm. Bar in in Carlton. I was I was there, and the next day they were they were putting up their parklet. I mean, Mm -hmm. that place has needed more seats. But since it existed, I mean, it's hard enough to get a table there and to see that pool when people sort of spinning their little umbrellas in the sun, that's so lovely and it's, yeah, it's such a good vibe. Um, and, you know, you want to talk about Melbourne getting back to being the most livable city in the world. Well, we absolutely fucking are at the moment because we have no COVID pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got all this amazing outdoor space for summer. Yeah. So, yeah, I, really, I hope that continues and I, I hope um, local councils, um, government helps support it as Mm. well because it's not just good for the hospitality industry it's good for reinvigorating all the jobs and all the tourism and all the positive aspects that come with that so I'm I'm pumped for outdoor dining that's something that I hope stays um Mm -hmm. I hope the other thing that I'm hoping that people (laughs) this is sort of a negative positive I Mm -hmm. sort of hope that in in a lot of you know, decades old favourites closing for good and people being yeah. quite shocked and thinking, God, that place is always so busy. Yeah. I hope the average funder realizes that just being a busy restaurant doesn't necessarily equate to a good restaurant mm-hmm. business model. Yes. So I hope there's a, a renewed appreciation of what it means to dine out. Yeah. So I mean we're so spoiled in Melbourne, you know, going out four times a week, excluding brunch. That's ridiculous. I yeah. mean, we need, we need to pay more for food. We need to be yeah. happy with paying more so that people can pay their staff, not even more, just properly, if I'm yeah. being honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I just I, – I really want the industry to thrive as an industry mm. um, and go from sort of being a love job, something that people are just passionate about, yeah. to something where people can actually make a living and be passionate about it. <laughs> so hopefully the pandemic – and not being able to go out, and now being able to go out. But everything that comes around that, whether you know, it's it's prepaid for meals or giving your credit card booking in case you happen to end up being a no-show, yes. all of that, mm-hmm. I just want people to accept that and really get behind it. And mm-hmm. I think that, that will change the industry. or will really start a snowball effect. Because, yeah. um, you know, Melbourne is hospitality, and if we want to stay that way, we really need to make some big changes.
0: Yeah, That's some awesome insights. Um, do you th- I've been pondering this the last couple of months do you, th- do you think people will probably eat out less but then spend more money when they do and sort of treat it like a almost more celebrationary rather than every day because like, I remember when I sort of joined the industry 20 years ago it was like that you wouldn't go to a restaurant every week you know it, you maybe got a restaurant every 2 weeks or every 4 weeks like it was much more around a celebration or for a reason where now people it's just part of it's just part of what we do you know and that's an amazing thing like do you think it will change that at all or do you think it will just sort of go back to normal in the next No
1: season? I don't think that will change. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think part part of the one of the great things about being in a city like Melbourne is that you can go out often mm. what will probably happen is that you'll see the restaurants change and what's available yeah. will change yeah. um, so a, f- a few things i guess i'm, I'm most worried about that that mid section of yeah. hospitality mm. i mean you've got fine dining people who are switching to set menus and presenting beautiful def- Special occasion food. Yes, that will always have a place. You know, top level service like flower drum. That's mm-hmm. not going anywhere. Yep. Um, at the other end of the scale, you've got cheap eats, whatever that means. Yep. Um, and you, and I think you have to be really aware of what that means. So you know, does that mean your chicken is not free range? Are you fine with that? Are you not fine with that? Yep. does it mean that there are processes in place that are sustainable. Whether that's talking about paying staff or talking about the environment. Yep. Um, you know things like that, all, all the margins involved. Generally, when you're eating something that's really cheap, there's someone somewhere that's probably even not being treated right or being yeah. taken advantage of. Yeah, so um, and maybe there's, you know, maybe it's a family-run restaurant and everyone's just in it together and yeah. that's their decision and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I think... Cheap eats, whatever that means, will always exist, and the mm-hmm. top end of the spectrum fine dining will always exist. Mm-hmm. What's going to probably change the most is that middle end of the spectrum, which is probably the most Melbourne yes. as well. You know, mm-hmm. so you're talking about um, you know fancy snacks and natural yep. wine bars, and yep. you know, sort of I don't know, call it sixty to ninety dollars a head restaurants. Yep. yep. Um, I think technology will end up playing a big part there keeping staff costs down yeah, so you'll totally still have agree. the extremely amicable person at the front showing you in and mm-hmm. asking you if you need mm-hmm. anything but you're probably going to be seeing a lot more QR code menus yeah. and once that technology is in place you're not going to go back to paper
0: no no it's it's yeah it's not turning back is it like you, if no. you pa- if you if you're paying from a QR code or an app or whatever like that venue's not going back you know yeah. especially if yeah. the, especially if that average ticket goes up just like mm. not going back to what it was before.
1: Mm. And then there's been a there's been a lot around um, a, a lot of sort of I guess you'd almost call it fruitful case studies, especially in Sydney. That some of some of these apps, like Me and You, is one that's around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, average spend per head goes up when you don't have to sort of consider whether you want another beer or not. You can just click the button and order it really quickly. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, I'd love people to spend more money restaurants, That would be <laughs> ideal, but you know, it's it's a global pandemic. A lot of people who still don't have jobs, and we're going to be in a really cheap place when yeah. job keepers finishes. So yeah. you can't. Th- there needs to be something for everybody in terms of price point, point. Um, mm. and hospitality will always have that for everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah. There'll always be yeah. There'll always be something at your range that you can you can purchase. That's a really good point. Um, my last question to you, Sophia. Um, what are you what are you looking forward to getting back to? that you can't quite do now?
1: I, I, I feel bad saying travel when I've been thinking about how much I love Melbourne and <laughs> Melbourne the hospitality for this entire podcast so far. Uh, but I am really looking forward to getting away. Um, yeah. Part of the reason I love going away is because it just, I mean, it's a cliche thing to say, but travel really does inform my worldview, and I think everybody's yep. worldview. Yep. And it really makes you realize how much we have back at home, also yeah. here in Melbourne. Great point. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to traveling more. I'm looking forward to getting out and about and filming more. I haven't been mm-hmm. able to sort of do many on the ground interviews um, for screen, uh, especially mm-hmm. with old masks and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, just looking forward to getting out and, and exploring different pockets of my own neighbourhood further afield uh, to see what, what gems are out
0: there that, you know, maybe I took for granted yep, previously. That you want to uncover. I'm,
1: uh, well, they you know, uncover for me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, hardly, um, I'm hardly the discoverer. I'm just a chronic researcher.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to see um, what you're going to research and discover next with the great um, the great media that you do. It's, uh, it's a really tribute to you. You do um, fantastic work. Um, So it's been really exciting to have you on today's podcast. So thanks so much. Um, What's the best way that people can follow you and find out about what you're doing here in Melbourne and, and obviously in your travel as well?
1: Sure, so Season Traveller is a good one. So mm-hmm. the website will be live by the end of this year, but mm-hmm. the newsletters are already currently up and firing. So Sweet. that's seasonedtraveller.com. Awesome. And then Instagram's a good one as well.
0: Yeah, so your there's awesome.
1: me, which is mm-hmm. Sophia K Levin. Sophia Levin was taken. And my oh, really? Sophia with a F, So, F I A K L E V I N. Mm-hmm. And also Season Traveller HQ is another way to get some of those um, snippets of places that might not be on the radar of mainstream media and that can help you sort of celebrate diversity through food and travel with your taste buds without necessarily having to jump on a plane
0: yeah that's awesome and uh if you didn't quite catch that they're always in the show notes so you can always click and connect with Sophia and follow her story Sophia levin thanks so much for your time
1: thank you for having me
0: so much for tuning to another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you know when it's coming out. We try to put out one to two a week to make sure you get the best hospitality information. And make sure you share it with people as well if you really enjoy it, you really like it. Please share it so the hospitality podcast gets even bigger in the coming year. Uh, Stay safe. Stay well. Till next time. Take care.